0: This conversation on COVID 19 is made possible by Discovery. Welcome to episode one of Inside COVID, our daily look. The virus that is causing ructions around the world. We've got quite a program for you to start off with. We spoke with Ryan Noach, who's the chief executive of Discovery Health, and he'll give us some insight into what a coronavirus is and uh, the latest state of play. One of the advantages of this podcast is that we can draw on the material from our partners at the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg. And that gives us insights into what's happening elsewhere in the world. And in this podcast, you'll hear a couple of those uh, interviews that really are of great relevance for us here in South Africa. Also in the program today, Hendrik de Toi, the chief executive of the recently listed 91, gives his views on how the world is going to be dealing with this As a hint, he thinks it's almost like going back to war. And then, to close off the show, we'll be hearing from Robin Sharma, a leadership guru and best-selling author. His books have sold more than 15 million copies for a more philosophical approach to what is happening. First, hear the news headlines. (music) Here are the latest COVID-19 headlines. South African President Sir Ramaphosa spent yesterday speaking with various interest groups to well together a cohesive force against the COVID-19 threat. South Africa has 260 infections. No fatalities have been registered. Ramaphosa was intending to address the nation as an update to his uh, state of disaster address on March the 15th. However, that has been postponed. Earlier in the day, though, he did meet with members of the business community to assess the impact of the disaster on the economy. Here's Economic Affairs Minister Abram Patel.
1: Uh, Really what, what the meeting did was it showed enormous convergence of thinking and a real commitment to working together, a belief by the business community and government that we can see our way through that the difficult times we live through, uh, we can, in fact, do what is right for our people. And we have got pledges here of support, of collaboration, of cooperation, and that really was what we dealt with.
0: Globally, the infections of COVID-19 are continuing to rise rapidly. By last night, they topped 310,000. It took many weeks to get to the first 100,000, only 12 days to the next 100,000, And then uh, the final 100,000 to take it above 300,000 took only three days, which gives an indication of the acceleration. Worldwide deaths now exceed 13,000. In Italy, which has the highest number of deaths from COVID-19 in the world, there were 793 fatalities on Saturday, up by 20% on the previous day, the highest one-day toll for anywhere in the world for one country for one day. The government in Italy has tightened the nationwide lockdown. Italy now has 54,000 infections and nearly 5,000 people have died. In the United States, infections topped 26,000, up 10 times in the past week. Donald Trump, the president, declared a major disaster in New York State and is considering doing similar things for California and other hard-hit states. Deaths in Iran, which has the third highest infection level behind Italy and China, rose by 129 on Saturday to 1,685. The country has spurned offers from the United States to assist. Malaysia, which has 1,183 cases of infection, has joined Lebanon by deploying soldiers to patrol the streets and arrest anybody who isn't in their homes without a good reason. Lebanon closed its borders to the rest of the world on Wednesday. And in economic news, the US Congress is close to a $2 trillion aid package for the economy. Donald Trump has joined Democrats in the attempt to ban share buybacks by companies listed in the United States. And Germany will be spending $160 billion to stem the economic downturn. It's really uh, good to have Ryan Nurch, the Chief Executive of Discovery Health, with us. Ryan, um, coronavirus or COVID-19, there's so much uh, confusion about how serious it is, where it comes from. Maybe you can give us a little bit of background on what a coronavirus is.
2: Sure, Alec, and thanks very much for having me. Uh, Coronavirus is actually not a new human infection. Uh, There are now, including this new coronavirus outbreak, seven known coronaviruses that infect humans. Four of them are actually extremely common, Alec, and uh, most of our kids will have contracted them or will contract them at some time. They're in the schools. uh, They're ubiquitous. They're everywhere. They're endemic, as we call it from a clinical point of view, and they cause the common cold predominantly. Uh, The next three, though, are uh, much more serious. So this particular coronavirus outbreak now, the virus is actually called SARS-CoV-2. SARS standing for Severe Adult Respiratory Syndrome Mm -hmm. uh, and CoV, coronavirus, Mm -hmm. this current outbreak. The two that happened before this uh, were the the SARS outbreak, which is SARS-CoV-1 now, that we all know of as SARS and the MERS outbreak, which fewer people have heard of, but actually, in fact, was also a coronavirus outbreak. MERS stands for Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. Um, And so what is it that makes these so serious? Well, these are actually zoonotic infections. What that means is that it's contracted originally from an animal and then uh, into a human, caught by a human. And what's worrying about them is the community transmission or the human-to-human transmission that can occur. So although it originally comes from an animal, it's transmitted human to human, and as we've seen, it can spread very widely. So, uh, you know, what you might want to know is, why is this epidemic of such a different scale and proportion to the SARS epidemic that we all know about?
0: Yeah, Ryan, just to to stop you there briefly, SARS, we know, had a very high mortality rate, uh, MERS even worse, but thankfully there were much smaller numbers that were infected. So it looks like this time around the mortality rate is a little lower and maybe you can explain why. And, but it, the infection is, is uh, on a, on an exponential scale.
2: Yeah. Uh, good questions. Let me start with the infectious part of it first. Um, all these three coronaviruses, SARS, MERS and COVID-19 have got slightly different characteristics. Um, so if you take SARS, for example, the r naught, or the reproductive rate of that coronavirus infection was actually higher than the current COVID-19 uh, outbreak. What that means is that for every person that was infected with SARS, about three people uh, would catch that SARS infection from the index case. Whereas in this COVID-19 disease, uh, the uh, r naught is about 2.5, so two and a half people for every mm-hmm. index case. Mm -hmm. You can compare that just as a reference point to the common flu or influenza virus, which is at about 1.5. So the number of people that catch it was higher with the SARS virus than it is with COVID-19, but both are higher than the influenza. So why then was SARS not as contagious as this? And the answer seems to be the following. SARS was transmissible only by symptomatic individuals. In other words, only once you started showing the symptoms were you infectious. Mm. With this COVID-19 disease, it appears now in the early stages that actually many asymptomatic people, and the majority of people who catch it are asymptomatic, they are transmitting the disease. And that's why we've seen this global pandemic spread across the world like, like wildfire, to be honest.
0: What are you doing at Discovery? What happens next from your perspective?
2: Look, we've taken a very strong leadership position. Uh, You would have seen a lot of uh, material from us. uh, And we've taken some very bold steps. The first was we recognized that there's a lot of misinformation out there. And we wanted to create one single source of factual information where people can get real-time, dynamic, reliable information that's fact-based. And so we, we, we took live on our website an information hub It's on the Discovery webpage. Uh, There's a link from the homepage directly to that. And we have had unprecedented number of hits there. You need not be a member to access that website. Anybody can access it. And we feel like we're we're being very responsible getting, you know, dealing with the misinformation. Mm -hmm. The second step that we took very quickly with amazing support from our regulator was we extended the benefits in all of our health plans. So from the Discovery Health medical scheme, any member that's on the medical scheme on all plans immediately as of almost two weeks ago now had full cover for confirmed coronavirus COVID-19 infections, both out of hospital and in hospital. Uh, Full cover from RAND1 for the diagnostic testing, the treatment, the consultations, and if necessary, the hospitalization. Um, And so, you know, we led with that. The Discovery Health Medical Scheme has the advantage of being financially in a very good position with solvency uh, above the statutory requirements with about 20 billion rand of cash reserves. Um, And so, you know, those reserves are there for catastrophic situations. And this is typically one of those situations. The third thing I think that, uh, you know, is very important in our response has been reaching out to particular segments of members uh, and clients and helping them with their responses. Mm. So in this group, largely large employer groups who are facing business continuity challenges, who need a guidance around what to do with their employees, um, who to send home, who's high risk in the employee base that should be sent to work from home on a mandatory basis, um, just advice on what to do when they've got somebody in their office environment who may have tested positive. How do they handle that? Uh, you know, what, what actions should they be taking? So the employers were one segment that we continue to support very actively. Um, and some, you know, some big employers with thousands of employees that were needing to make really uh, large-scale decisions. The other thing that um, that's become very relevant is all of the members who – are either elderly or living with chronic diseases. They specifically need very important information about this disease, and they must take the, special, the social distancing and spatial separation very seriously. So we've reached out to all of those clients individually.
0: Ryan, do you feel that South Africans are now starting to take it as seriously as the President wants us to?
2: I, I'm, I'm scared that we're not. Um, although I've seen a marked difference in traffic patterns in the number of people that you see out there in the shopping centers and so on. I think that there is still a bit of a lackadaisical mindset and really do, I think, need a, a, to heed the president's words and enforce the social distancing very sternly.
0: Are there any early warning signals on infection so that you know not to go into a public place or is the safest thing just to, just to stay at home and social distance from day one?
2: I think that is the safest thing at the moment for your own safety and others. Uh, The signs or symptoms of the disease are most commonly a fever. And so, you know, if you want to be vigilant, you can check your temperature twice a day. And if it's above 38, it's very likely you're contracting an infection. And at this stage, it may well be COVID-19. It's also characterized by a sore throat together with a dry cough and about 70% of of patients are experiencing that. It's a hacking cough, unproductive, together with the sore throat. Some people are experiencing gastrointestinal symptoms. That seems to be a minority. And the thing to worry about, particularly at three to four days after contracting the disease, is shortness of breath. That may be a sign that you're actually developing a pneumonia as a result of COVID-19, and you should urgently get health professional support if you do experience that.
0: So if you've got none of those symptoms, if you have normal temperature, if you are not coughing, and certainly you're not short of breath, if you're exercising as per normal, are you then okay to, to go to work?
2: Yeah, well, at the moment, I can only speak for our employees. We've sent the majority of our workforce to work from home. We feel that's responsible to protect them and those around them. If you have to go to work and it's essential that you you, you venture out, uh, then you must. And if you don't have any of those symptoms and you're completely asymptomatic, hopefully you don't have an infection. I guess there's a part of us in the clinical community that are actually hoping that there are lots of asymptomatic people. And why this would be good news is the mortality rates that are being reported are obviously a factor of the number of deaths divided by the number of reported infections. But if there's lots of asymptomatic people walking around who are, in fact, infected, well, then the good news would be that the mortality rate of this disease is much lower than is being reported.
0: And what about summer versus winter?
2: There are very clear guidelines from virologists that the virus survives outside the body longer in the winter time, for two reasons. The first is that the virus is deactivated by ultraviolet light. And obviously, there's much more of that in the summer. And secondly, that the virus survives in saliva droplets, and those saliva droplets tend to evaporate much quicker in hotter conditions. And so for two reasons, it seems very likely that winter will lead to much faster spread than summer. You know, the fomites, the inanimate objects where these saliva droplets survive, they're less likely to transmit the disease in summer than in winter. That is the guideline. But please, this shouldn't give you a false sense of security that we're safe because we're at the end of summer. It's not the case. We are seeing spread in the summer period, and one must remain vigilant and careful.
0: Ryan, there are also two views on how to handle COVID-19. The one view being slow it down, flatten the curve, as they have now picked up in the United States. The other one is to infect the herd and you get over it quickly, although the UK did go that route and seem to have changed their minds on it. Uh, what, what school of thought are you in?
2: Look, I'm not an epidemiologist or a virologist, and so I'm actually not the expert on this. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm reading a lot and being advised by good public health specialists. Uh, our view is that containment and suppression is currently definitely the right strategy. That is what the view that our government's and our National Institute of Communicable Diseases has taken. And I think what's very heartening about this particular strategy, and we should gain some uh, to positivity and optimism from it, is that in the Chinese, South Korean, Singaporean, and Japanese experience, those four highly disciplined nations, we've seen that a containment strategy absolutely stops the infection rate, slows it down dramatically, In the case of China, three days ago, not a single reported infection. Uh, But their containment strategy has been really onerous and substantial. I mean, the people are are housebound. Um, So, you know, our current thinking and supported by our country's National Institute of Communicable Diseases is let's flatten the curve, suppress infections, contain any further spread and protect people and lives and hopefully we learn things about this disease, how to treat it, and potentially a vaccine comes around uh, that we can you know, act medically to, to protect people.
0: Are we learning much from China? I know you at Discovery have got a, a, a very close relationship with Ping An there. Of course, South Africa is a member of BRICS, uh, close relationships too. Is that helping?
2: Yes, it is. Um, I understand that the president's office has got a hotline to the Chinese experts who are helping advise the president, uh, the president's office, and through him, the Department of Health around some of the containment strategies specifically, uh, but certainly some of the success of the Chinese story. Uh, our team in China, we have some expats in China. As you know, we are a minority shield of a health insurer in China, and um, we, we're learning great lessons from them. Uh, It's quite extraordinary to see how the Chinese have responded. They've almost changed their way of life uh, in amazing digital services and innovations that have been spawned through this. And, you know, it may be a whole podcast on its own to chat to our team in China for you and hear about what the Chinese response has been.
0: Well, Ryan, I'm looking forward to that one as well. It'll be good talking with you. We'll be in touch uh, in the days and weeks ahead. Uh, Just maybe to close off with, are you in the camp that says that South Africa's government has handled this well so far?
2: Yes, uh, I certainly am, Alec. I think that our National Institute of Communicable Diseases has given very good communication and guidance. I think our cabinet through the, and the president took an early and emphatic decision uh, to enforce containment much earlier than many other countries, which I must say has been a, a very profound and good step that's definitely given us a window to prepare in case we develop rampant community spread Um, because most of our infections to date, the 250 that you spoke of earlier, still the vast majority of those are imported infections from people who've flown in with the disease and contracted it elsewhere. Uh, So I think at this stage we've done a great job. The truth is you're seeing it around the world developed and emerging markets, that any health system tends to be overwhelmed by an epidemic of this proportion. Um, And so obviously there is reason to be concerned.
0: The one thing that many people have not been factoring into the equation is the impact of human ingenuity. And my goodness, are human beings getting at it as quickly as possible to try and win this war against COVID-19. Some very interesting information came through from the Nikkei Asian Review last week, which reports a Chinese ministry official from the China National Center for Biotechnology Development saying at a press conference that a drug that was developed by Fujifilm in Japan is actually proving to be successful in fighting the uh, novel coronavirus A clinical trial was conducted at hospitals in Wuhan and Shenzhen with 200 patients participating and the test results for those receiving the drug turned negative in a shorter period and their pneumonia symptoms improved at a higher rate. Well, there's also some good news, one believes, from the United States where President Donald Trump has told the U.S. Food and Drug Administration to investigate whether it can expand the use of decades-old malaria drugs as an experimental treatment for coronavirus patients. Although Chinese trials have shown some promise, it is, however, not clear whether this will work against the virus. Dr. Amy Compton Phillips, the Chief Clinical Officer at Providence St. Joseph Health in the United States, spoke to our colleagues at Bloomberg, Carol Massa and Jason Kelly, about possible treatments.
3: Yeah, you know, I I think what's really important is for us to have a systematic approach to this um that that we can end up playing whack-a-mole if we go after the next bright shiny object. And so what we've been really doing here on the West Coast, which at the moment um you know, we're we're neck and neck with New York, not that we want to not that we want to race to the front of the line for this, um but for having the most cases um in our system right now, we're treating uh, it's upwards of about 800 people that either have known or suspected coronavirus. Um, and we're trying to do several things. One is we're trying to make sure that we can triage people appropriately and get them to the right location so that if you happen to have uh, symptoms of the virus and because the testing's is taking so long, we can't definitively say, we do everything we can to take care of you in your home if, if you are stable enough to be in your home so we don't overwhelm the healthcare system, right? We're trying to make sure that in the hospital, if you go, have to go into the hospital, we're putting you with other patients that also have um, covid as well, and so that we can minimize use of the PPE. And then if you need acute care, we have several uh, ongoing trials of medications, including um, the, the malarial drugs that the president talked about today, including some of the direct antivirals um, that you heard about in the past few days. So so I think by thinking through this um, systematically rather than, you know, uh, ping, 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 you know, all over the place, um, that we can actually kind of get a handle on what's going on.
4: Well, and Dr. Compton Phillips, it's really interesting insights. And I also wanted to ask you um, what you're seeing, because one of the headlines that I think has grabbed a lot of people is the population that's being infected. And it feels like the narrative has shifted there as well in terms of many more young people being not just diagnosed, but hospitalized. Are you seeing that? Have you seen that? And what should we be taking from this latest data?
3: Yeah. You know, that was an interpretation by the news previously that young people don't get infected. Um, In all the articles and conversations that we've had with the physicians in China, with the physicians in Italy, um, young people do get infected. Mm -hmm. It's just that they tend to recover at a much higher rate. And so that the mortality is higher in patients that are older and people that have underlying health conditions. But young people absolutely get infected. And we're seeing that same thing here. Um, They end up Less often in the ICU on a per capita basis, but they do end up um, seriously ill. And it's one of the reasons why it's really we, we, are, we are doing everything by hook and by crook to make sure that we have enough capacity in ICUs because we want to save every single person that comes to us with this bad disease um, and not, not have people you know, dying for lack of access to healthcare. Is there some medication out there, perhaps existing, a drug that's already in the system already, you know, the FDA has pretty much signed on, off on that we can see then maybe another use of? Um, we have actually tested a couple different drugs uh, that have, in in other kinds of viral diseases, have antiviral activity. Um, that have not worked, but we're absolutely looking at the array. And, in fact, that the um, malaria drug that the president mentioned, hydroxychloroquine, mm-hmm. is one that's been on the market for decades. Um, and so that that has shown early promise, particularly in China, um, which is why we're standing up a study here as well. Um, and then the antiviral drugs, while it hadn't been approved yet, it was um, being developed for Ebola, um, and so but had another use, and, and that's the one right now that we have a couple different clinical trials going on to see, really, if this does work.
4: Dr. Combs-Phillips, only uh, about 40 seconds left here. i uh, got to ask you, since we've talked a lot about it, testing, is it ramping up? How soon will it be, in your estimation, to the point where it's really rolling in an effective way?
3: Testing is still a dramatic bottleneck, um, and so part of the challenge is that if For every patient that wants to be tested or every person that wants to be tested and doesn't have major symptoms, it means people with significant disease in a hospital somewhere is not getting tested. And so having having really clear, um, when you have a shortage, you have to figure out who gets what first. And we are in a shortage situation. And as we ramp up over the next month, it'll get better. But right now, we really need to use those tests for the people who need them the most.
0: Now, here's a novel take on COVID-19. Hendrik de Toy is the chief executive of 91, an asset management company that's been born out of the old Investic asset management company, which he founded himself uh, 29 years ago. They had the misfortune of listing right in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis, and the share price is currently trading at half the level it was anticipated at, ahead of the listing well they didn't have to raise any money so as a consequence no one is terribly disappointed in having lost cold cash but Hendrik is looking ahead and he's looking through all of this and believes a somewhat different approach is now going into the minds of governments around the world in his thinking it's like another world war have a listen how are you seeing things develop from here
1: well we, we what what we're seeing is is uh, something very different from either a financial crisis or a single country going bust. We see a situation where the world is going temporarily into a war economy where all rules get thrown out, stability is searched. In that fog of war there there there, there will be big substantial moments of mispricing that one should ignore and look at the long term. But my, guess, my best guess is that we're going to have a very, very sharp recovery in risk assets once the world reverts to normal. question is, and, and that's an important question, who is going to pay for this? And how will payment get extracted? And I, I uh, by you know, by the governments who currently go in and do things. And I, I think that is an interesting question, and may probably lead to a world with higher inflation down the line. We've had no inflation for a long, long time, and a world where, um, uh, you know, in the end. Uh, businesses particularly equities will do a lot better than, than 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 fixed income instruments which start at very low levels and of which the credit quality has worsened substantially my near near-term fear is the credit markets can we keep the credit markets stable because they've essentially frozen up um, particularly corporate bonds and uh, that needs some regulatory intervention but also cooperation between the market participants and and regulators and and so the one thing that worries me a little bit about uh, uh South Africa i'm not sure business and government have had a constructive dialogue in the last few years so they can act as quickly as we acted for example when african bank was saved which is a very small exercise but it was really well done by south africa i think right now we rel- we talk at each other we don't we don't talk to each other And I've seen here in in the UK and America now where where, where the governments are starting to use the private sector very effectively in delivering some of the objectives. So I I just worry about that bit in in, in China that it really effectively because basically the state controls everything. Um, So we need to be careful and we need to differentiate between markets. But my gut feel is there's going to be a fairly sharp recovery quicker than people expect.
0: And the timing of that, given that you've got people in Hong Kong who've seen uh, the China story from up close. Uh, Koki, again, yesterday was saying the Chinese experience would suggest five to six months from from the time that it hits the, to the time that normality returns again. What's your best guess?
1: I, re- I really don't know, but I give the um, – and I'm, I'm not I, – I, I, I wouldn't engage in that uh, – discussion because the west is so different from china but i think the one thing in favor of cocky's point is you are whatever people say the science is going to accelerate incredibly quickly now there's so much money behind it there's so much pressure and the chinese are a few months ahead and they they have been working very very hard so although imperial college sent out a very depressing paper this week uh, a much more optimistic one has come out from from israel I'm not sure who's going to win uh all I know if we if we talk on this uh program in two years' time, this would not be the main topic of our discussion. Our discussion would be uh how the private sector manages its or public sector manages its balance sheet, which has grown a bit too big and what environment there is for business to globally operate in other words, are we living in a world where there are huge, still trade wars or huge barriers, or, or is this a world in which value can be created? And I think for our industry and our business, we are very dependent on a world with global rules. That is the one thing I fear as an a global asset manager. If you have a world which, 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 which has a breakdown in the, in the global commercial order, it is a problem.
0: And let's finish off on a brighter note or at least a more philosophical one. Last week I spoke with Robin Sharma who's one of the leadership gurus in the world. His books have sold more than 15 million copies and his latest book The 5 AM Club is the best yet, well so I believe anyway. We had a fascinating conversation which you can pick up elsewhere on the Business News Radio podcast channel. So how are you reading the world right now with coronavirus putting everyone in such a tizzy? Mm.
4: I don't know if anyone knows where it's all going. I would say, again, um, it, it's almost like we've been f- given a period of enforced quietude. I don't know <clears throat> excuse me, what the position, what, what's going on in South Africa in terms, but here in Canada, we're in lockdown. And, you know, people are asked to be, you know, stay home and social distancing. And I think, you know, there are some benefits and opportunities to that. It's enforced quietude in a world that was driven by busyness. And I think, Alec, we're, we're being asked by the world to shift from human doings to human beings again. And I think it's an opportunity for us to talk to our family again. In person versus via devices. And I think it's a chance for us to read great books. I'm a huge fan of Nelson Mandela. I've been evangelizing even his book. Um, it's by Richard Stengel. I think it's the Mandela way. And of course, his autobiography. And, you know, in 2016, I stood in his prison cell. And then I even went to, I think, Drakenstein. um prison and parole, and you know and and it's just a great time to read about these great human beings it's a great time to start writing in a journal it's a great time to learn to meditate it's a great time to do this for interior empire work that i talk about in the 5m club that makes us great human beings and allows us to connect with our gifts and be kinder human beings so yes it's it's a tragic time you know and and uh, there's a lot of volatility economically, and, <clears throat> but I think ultimately, of course, we're going to come through this, and I hope that as a result of what's happening, our egos will crack and we'll be more heroic again, and we'll be human beings that care about the planet and even more care about each other again.
0: That was Leadership Guru and best-selling author Robin Sharma, and this has been the first episode of Inside COVID-19. I hope you've enjoyed it and will come back again for more tomorrow. I'm Alec Hogg. Until the next time, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.